but they go further and further and further into economic slavery. Populism. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Long a force in American history. Whose property has been confiscated in its entirety, and whose altars in Christ have been desecrated. The dictionary defines populism as a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people. When the concerns of foreigners take precedence over the needs of Americans, our government is betraying us and has become illegitimate. Who feel that their concerns are disregarded. We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. (laughs) President Obama, are you listening? Who feel they're ignored by established elite groups. In left-wing populism, it goes to the economic elites. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street. Wall Street. When we talk about wealth distribution, oh my goodness, can't talk about that. In cultural populism, it goes toward minorities. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Populism is also... To be closer to the people or closer to the popular will. The forgotten men and women of our country. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Welcome to an on-point special series, The Power of Populism. Because populism unifies the people by negativity. Its global reach. Its authoritarian danger. I am your voice. And its democratic promise. Populism is what we desperately need, what we have to have, and what we can't have. Episode 3, Wisconsin and the Politics of Resentment. Charlie Sykes is founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark. He's host of The Bulwark podcast. He's also author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. And he knows more than a thing or two about Wisconsin. He's in Milwaukee now, and he's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And there's another specific reason why he knows a lot about Wisconsin, which we'll talk about in a second. But first, Charlie, welcome back to On Point. It's good to be with you. So do you think that the Wisconsin of the past 10 or 15 years is a good example of the politics of resentment? And if so, why? Yes, um, I do think it's a good example because uh, we have been a microcosm of American politics for some time now. I I think uh, for the last decade and a half, you could describe Wisconsin as being ground zero for many of the developments that we've seen nationally. But as as usual, um, Wisconsin politics is very um, complicated. Our legacy is more of progressivism than it is of uh, of populism. But clearly, you can't uh, you can't discuss what's happened here without talking about uh, this politics of resentment and the way that it has been weaponized in the era of Donald Trump. Yeah, so that's exactly why we wanted to focus uh, on the Badger State today. So how would you define what the politics of resentment is and how it's uh, how it emerges or plays out in Wisconsin? Well, I think part of the problem that we have here in Wisconsin is that you do have uh, a lot of the 
the voters who feel that they have been neglected. Uh, they feel they've been overlooked or they've been looked down upon. And, and they see the world passing them by. And they're looking for some explanation for that. They're looking for someone to blame for that. And so you, you are seeing this in uh, rural areas of Wisconsin where people are looking around and going, okay, so has, has globalization helped me? Are the political parties actually talking about people like me or are they taking me for granted or even worse, are they looking down on people like me with contempt? So if someone can tap into that sense of resentment that I am being victimized, I am being treated unfairly, I am not able to benefit by, you know, the, the prosperity and things that are happening around me the way that I think that I deserve. And, of course, there's long traditions of all of this, but it's flared up really in the last uh, decade and a half. Yeah, so we're going to talk about why uh – as you're saying, the this sense of resentment has been there for a long time, but why it's become electorally successful. Um, and then specifically in Wisconsin, that's what we're going to focus on this hour. But as I had mentioned a little earlier, Charlie, there's another reason why uh, you were one of the experts on Wisconsin politics, and we were really thrilled to have you back on the show today. And that reason is this. Now, you've got this is Radio Free Milwaukee. And free men you are. On 620 WTMJ. What will you do without freedom? Radio Free Milwaukee. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives? Now, WTMJ's Charlie Sykes. The eagle has landed. Good morning, Wisconsin. You're listening to News Radio 620 WTMJ's closing days of the election campaign. We want to welcome all of the the audience from C-SPAN around the country. Charlie, we, um, I, we, we had... <laughs> not too dramatic, was it? Not, was that, not, not, not over the top at all. Was that Braveheart, really? That was Braveheart, yeah. Oh, I, I still like that. still gives me goosebumps, I have to say. <laughs> it's timeless. It's truly timeless. So that was from you in 2004, um, just with a little taste, a little taste of what you did for almost a quarter century, right? From 93 to 2016, you host a, a conservative talk show on WTMJ in Wisconsin. And so, I mean, what kind of stuff did you hear over that time that might have given you um, a little bit of an inkling that this resentment was going to sort of burst forth and be become a major political force in Wisconsin. Well, I have a note that I, I, I do remember that show that you're particularly playing for, if it was 2004, that one of the guests I had on that program was Condoleezza Rice. So we traced the trajectory of, of Wisconsin conservatism from people like Condoleezza Rice to Donald Trump in 2016. And you know, look, I, as, as I said before, I was taken by surprise by the turn um, that the, the right took in 2015 and 2016. Uh, there were many things that I think that we should have paid more attention to, that we should have watched that took a, a different uh, took a different direction. Uh, over those many years, I really did think that uh, I understood what the conservative movement was, um, what was motivating people. And as uh, 2016 played out, uh, it became increasingly obvious that there were perhaps things that I did not understand, um, that things that we talked about were not being heard in the same kind of way. 
Wisconsin was one of the last states to resist Trumpism. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did not do well here. He was beaten in the Wisconsin primary by double digits. But as 2016 played out, what uh, became apparent was that uh, the partisan divide was so strong, the tribal pull was so intense that even voters who had not been willing to go along with that populist uh, resentment message that Donald Trump was, was bringing fell back into line. And we've seen that accelerate since then. So we've seen things that were there as a pre-existing condition, mm-hmm. but then we've also seen the way in which it was like throwing kerosene on a smoldering fire, and it has accelerated since then. Yeah, So, but it's that dramatic shift that I want to explore over the course of this hour, because to add to the points that you made, Barack Obama won Wisconsin, right? Twice. twice. If I'm, yeah, twice. So so something really powerfully changed there, but, but I, can't, I just can't let go of your remarkable past as a radio <laughs> so we, can I. We, we got a, we got a little bit more here this is again from 2004 and you're talking to a caller named patty and by the way since i am uh, located here in boston i've just gotta say that 2004 was the year the red sox won the world series the great part about the playoffs this year and the world series and why i'm a little bit the again the only downside i can come up with is I, it would have been nice to have had a few more games because just for a few hours we don't all have to obsess about this presidential election because, you know, I, I think without things like the World Series, I, I think that millions of Americans' heads will explode in the next uh, 48 hours. Well, I think you're right. And I'm also a, um, I'm a former Democrat from Massachusetts and now a, a conservative Republican in Wisconsin. And I usually, I called my mom to try to tur- have her turn to C-SPAN because I've even gotten her, she's going to vote for George Bush. She already voted absentee. So, Patty, you're, you're, voting, you're, yeah. you're, you're, a recovering, you're a recovering liberal. I am just, just like, like me. See, I don't yes. describe myself as a conservative. I describe, I describe myself as a recovering liberal. I, I think there yeah. probably are more than a few. Okay, I'm going to take one more call on this. And we so that's Charlie Sykes on his talk show in Milwaukee in 2004. Aside from that brief, fantastic moment in time when the Sox won the World Series, I was really fascinated to hear Patty say she was a former Democrat from Massachusetts, but now a conservative Republican in Wisconsin. So in 2004... What did it actually mean to be a conservative Republican in Wisconsin? Well, you know, before the, the current era, I, I think that Wisconsin's conservatism was uh, reformist. The longtime governor of Wisconsin was Tommy Thompson, who uh, worked across the aisle, had strong bipartisan support, uh, was able to uh, engage with Democrats on a variety of things, including welfare reform and education reform. Of course, he was out of office by 2004. In 2004, Republicans were not really in in power. They didn't come into really controlling Wisconsin government for another half decade. But it was not the kind of uh, you know virulent tribalism that we have now. When you think about Wisconsin Republicans, the dominant uh, you know figures in Wisconsin politics, you know, going back into that particular era, would people like Paul Ryan? Whatever you think about Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan was not part of that uh, that populist movement necessarily. But see, as, as we discuss this, I, I, I think back to your question, and I wonder. What was simmering there? Mm-hmm. What was simmering beneath the surface? I, I remember, you know, after the 2016 election, I had a long conversation uh, on the air with uh, with George Will. And we were both saying that uh, 
You know, we had thought we understood, you know, that conservatism was about small government, that it was about uh, fiscal conservatism. It was about personal responsibility. It was about, you know, believing the character mattered. And it turned out that many of those things were much thinner than we had perhaps imagined. And there were a lot of things that we did not see or understand. Well, today it's episode three of our special series, The Power of Populism. And we're looking at Wisconsin and the politics of resentment. Charlie Sykes is with us. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're back with episode three of our special series, The Power of Populism. And today we're looking at Wisconsin and the politics of resentment. Now, that phrase, the politics of resentment, especially in Wisconsin, was crystallized by someone named Kathy Kramer. Because back in 2007, Kramer wanted to better understand how social class and identity affected how people understand politics. And she decided to use Wisconsin as her test state because she's from the Badger State. She's now a professor of American politics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, again, back in 2007, Kramer chose about 30 different communities across Wisconsin, a mix of small towns, suburbs, and cities with different kinds of industries, etc., And then she called around to local newspaper editors and asked them where should she go to talk with groups of regulars? Should she go to a diner or someplace like that? And she got a surprising answer, especially from smaller towns, because it was, nope, not a diner. The place to go was the local gas station. The smaller town paper editors would say, like, well, you know, at Joe's Gas and Sip, like, five o'clock every morning, that's, that's where you go. And so then I would just go online, look up at the closest Super 8, stay overnight, get up, drive over to a gas station, and take a deep breath and walk in. And she found local residents gathered inside, having their morning coffee and talking. So for several years, Kramer returned often and spent time with people there listening to how they talked about their lives. What I heard in the smaller places was new to me. And seemed politically really important because in a variety of places around the state, in these smaller places, rural communities, people were basically saying, we do not get our fair share. Like, we don't get our fair share of political power, of attention. Like, people don't come here. They don't ask us what's going on. We don't get our fair share of resources because all the 
good jobs are in the cities. It seems like all the good infrastructures in the cities, like our taxes are going up and it sure doesn't seem like it's coming back here. You know, our towns are dying, our schools are struggling, and we don't get our fair share of respect because you city people who make all the decisions, you don't know us, you don't understand what our lives are like and the challenges that we face, and you think we're all racist and sexist and backward and uneducated. We we see ourselves as good, hardworking Americans, and we're not getting what we deserve. Recall, Kramer started this project back in 2007, and she called the phenomenon she was observing rural consciousness. Then, in 2010, as she was getting ready to finish up her book on the idea, Scott Walker kicked off his campaign for governor. And Kramer noticed something familiar about how Walker was selling his candidacy. He was Milwaukee County executive at the time, and he was running against Milwaukee. He was pitching himself very much as, I'm with you, like good Wisconsinites. I'm running against the city. I bring a brown bag to work every day. You know, I'm super frugal. Kramer said Walker framed the cities of Madison and Milwaukee as the haves and those in the rest of Wisconsin as the have-nots. And remember, she just said in particular he was running against the city of Milwaukee. Well, that's interesting to me because the facts about Milwaukee are quite different. Almost a quarter of Milwaukee residents live below the poverty line in comparison to 10% across the entire state of Wisconsin. Milwaukee has the second highest poverty rate among the 50 most populated cities in the country. And almost 40% of Milwaukee's population is black, compared to 12% of the rest of Wisconsin. Nevertheless, Scott Walker amplified his haves and have-nots message. He went after a plan for a high-speed rail line between Madison and Milwaukee. And he argued that Wisconsin taxpayers were unfairly shouldering the cost for state employee benefits. Now, this is what Kramer calls the politics of resentment. Well, then, after Kramer published her book, came along Donald Trump. He did a similar thing in a very different way, but he also said, you're right to be so pissed off. You do deserve more. And you know what? It's their fault. And he pointed his finger to what immigrants, uppity women, lefty, urban people. Just he resonated with that sense of something is really off here. Like we've been working really hard and living life the way people in this community have been living it for generations. And we cannot make ends meet. And no one's listening to us. And we're really upset about it. A savvy politician, a populist politician can come in and say, you're right. And not only should you be resentful, but you should angry and you should hate them. And they suck because look what they're taking from you. That's Kathy Kramer, author of The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker. Okay, Charlie Sykes. Well, so much of what Kathy said is really interesting to me, specifically the the idea that Scott Walker was running against the city of Milwaukee. I mean, you're in Milwaukee today. Um, and those facts that I read about the truth of, uh, you know, are is Milwaukee the haves? Well, not necessarily. But I wonder, like, why did it stick? Why did that message, which wasn't necessarily grounded in fact, stick with so many Wisconsin voters? Well, he usually uh, would pair it with running against both Milwaukee and against Madison, you know, the Madison elites. And part of it was, you know, I am I am the brown bag guy versus the elites. And when you look at at, at Milwaukee, 
you know, there's, there's, there's several different levels. I mean, a lot of the, the resources of the state did go into Milwaukee and into Madison and, and came there. But also, you know, in retrospect, as you look back on it, what he was doing is he was trying to weaponize, uh, you know, the issue of crime, um, the issue of social dysfunction. Um, clearly, there's a racial division here in Wisconsin, very small minority population, you know, compared to other uh, major states, but but heavily concentrated in southeastern Wisconsin. So that was certainly part of it. But there was it was not it was not on the forefront the way that Donald Trump made pushed it to the forefront, where Donald Trump came in and specifically said, you know, you are, you know, the forgotten Americans. And it is because of the Mexicans who are coming here for your jobs, for your women. They are it is the Chinese. It is all of these folks uh, that are threatening. And and he he really was able to. Uh, leverage that sense that uh, the people felt victimized and treated unfairly. So while Walker sort of tiptoed toward it, uh, Trump put it on speed dial okay. and, and accelerated it. Okay. So that was that that uh, actually, in a sense, predicts what my next question mm. was going to be to you, Charlie, because we should walk back in time a little bit with uh, – uh, recent Wisconsin Republican politics in particular. So mm-hmm. there's Trump who threw, you know, fuel on the fire. Uh, Scott Walker, I guess you could say he helped that fire smolder. But what about with Tommy Thompson? I mean, how different was Tommy Thompson from uh, Governor Scott Walker? They're very, very yeah. different uh, figures. Uh, to, to, Tommy came from a, a, a very different political generation. I mean, he was also from rural Wisconsin. Uh, he was also, uh, you know, willing to play that card uh, when there was a big fight over uh, whether or not to fund a Brewer Stadium in Milwaukee. He campaigned um, outside. He he was supporting it, but he would. Uh, one of the lines that he used was, "You should stick it to them. Stick it to Milwaukee. Make them pay for it." So he was capable of doing it, but but Tommy was also able. Uh, to uh, to work on a bipartisan basis, whereas uh, when when Scott Walker became governor um, and he had big majorities in the legislature, he decided that he was going to move at ramming speed, that he was going to embrace radical change. Tommy always managed, and again, you know, Tommy did some pretty big things here, but he always was able to have Democratic support. You can draw a real line here in Wisconsin, the politics before 2011 and after 2011, because after 2011, nothing was done on a bipartisan basis. And as a result, the partisan divisions became much uh, deeper. They became much more defined and they became more tribal. It really became us versus them. So all of this was a pre-existing condition. It was always there. But it accelerated in those years. I see. Okay, so when you say that Scott Walker kind of uh, went at things at ramming speed, you mean, you're talking specifically about one of uh, then-Governor Walker's first actions, yeah. right, which was to go after the uh, state public employee unions. Right. Yes, this was uh, Act 10, and this was something yeah. in, the, in pretty much in his first uh, month, one, month in office that would have stripped most public employees of their collective bargaining rights. Okay. Well, uh, I want to actually play a moment here from uh, that period of time. This is Ellen Jensen. She's a teacher in Madison. And um, also you'll hear Ryan Pryor. They were among protesters who flooded the state capitol in Madison after Walker signed uh, Act 10 into law in 2011. And uh, they spoke to WISN 12 News. 
We won't be able to get teachers to stay in teaching. It's expensive to get a college degree, and this is one of the poorest paying professions when you get out. This decision by, uh, by the Republican um, legislature and by the governor may, uh, may force some of our key employees here in the, the uh, state of Wisconsin to move to other places. Okay, Charlie, I got to ask you, I mean, you were a very prominent uh, uh, radio host during all of this time in Wisconsin. I presume you talked to Scott Walker very frequently. I mean, did did you ever get a sense from him about why he decided to uh, run his campaign in this way? I mean, did did he come from those people who... Uh, had that sense of resentment? Was it a political calculus? I mean, what was it? Well, it's interesting that he did not actually raise this issue um, during his, his election campaign in 2010, which took some people by surprise. This was the kind of thing that had been talked about by people like Chris Christie in New Jersey. It had been uh, uh, broached in, um, you know, among conservative think tanks, you know, wonks, uh, if you could if you could dial down the power of the public employee unions. But and, and I think he acknowledged this afterwards. He did not prepare public opinion for this. This was not something that people talked about. You know, let's go after public employees. Let's destroy the public employee unions. And yet, obviously, it set off an absolute conflagration in Wisconsin. I mean, it was you had recall elections, recalls of state legislators, a recall election of Scott Walker. You had tens of thousands of people descending on Madison. Well, that's after, probably why he didn't talk about it when he was running. Well, he, well, I, I don't think he anticipated that it was going to be as, um, as contentious as it was. I think he thought he would be able to push it through quickly and then just simply move on. It was a miscalculation on his part, and and he, he acknowledged that um, afterwards. But what was interesting was at the time when it happened, it it did surprise people that he was putting all of this capital into this particular issue. And the public opinion polls did not show that the Wisconsin residents supported all of this. And there were people in the Republican Party that thought that he should back off from this, that it was, you know, spending too much political capital. So and I've thought a lot about, you know, what this did to Wisconsin politics, because the the at a certain point, the fight over Act 10 was not about collective bargaining rights in Act 10. The fight became about the fight, by which I mean this was one of those moments where people became deeply engaged because it was our side versus the other side. And it was red versus blue, us versus them. And it became very tribal. If you asked People, you know, in, in, in the diners or at the, at, the, at the gas stations, what do you think about uh, Act 10? What do you think about collective bargaining rights? You know, I don't know that, that this was something that people were talking about, you know, over their, over their uh, you know, Kringles. But what they were talking about was whose side are you on? And that's been the real legacy of that period, that, that the, the, the partisan loyalties became so deeply ingrained and the hostility to the other side so deeply ingrained. And I think that when you, again, look back at what happened in 2016 and afterwards, uh, you, you, you see the fruits of that, mm-hmm. that Republicans felt so you know, deeply loyal to their tribe. They were willing to go along with anything. Right. Uh, I was actually talking to a Republican legislature, uh, legislator uh, in the last week, and he said, you know, um, nobody in the Republican base remembers Act 10 anymore. They don't care about it. They don't talk about it. They don't think about it. What they remember is the fight, uh-huh. is that we were under siege and we pushed back. 
And that's where you really got the intensity and the division in Wisconsin politics. Okay, so resentment then sort of metastasized into full-blown tribalism. But but again, you know, in in a sense, people were primed for the fight. So let's listen to what Scott Walker said in 2010 after giving a victory speech. Or I'm sorry, this is in his victory speech after winning the Republican nomination for governor. And you'll hear him reference then-Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle. Because of this primary, we are tested and we are ready to take on the liberals in Madison. Tonight, I also want to speak beyond this room to those individuals across the state who voted for Mark Newman to tell you we have a lot in common. We each want to stop the Doyle disaster, and we each want to put the government back in the hands of the people. Scott Walker in 2010. So a little more us-them language in a more extreme version followed in 2016 with, of course, Donald Trump. And here he is in West Bend, Wisconsin. Aren't you tired of a system that gets rich at your expense? Because that's what's happening. Aren't you tired of big media, big businesses, and big donors rigging the system to keep your voice from being heard? Are you ready for change? Donald Trump in 2016 in Wisconsin. Okay, so... Charlie, but what I'm trying to get a sense of is when we're talking about, you know, the politics of resentment and how it plays out in in populism, the the cracks were already there. Did, you know, Scott Walker and then, of course, um, other members of the Republican Party in Wisconsin as they fell in line with Donald Trump, did they do so because they were true believers or they had somehow they had a, their finger on the pulse in a way that you even admit you didn't have. And they just saw this as a as a winning electoral strategy. No, I, 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 I think that they saw this as a winning electoral strategy. And keep in mind, you know, that Walker and his entire um, you know, his entire political operation were strongly anti-Trump until they were pro-Trump. Yeah. <laughs> it was Trump came in and trashed uh, and, and trashed Walker. But yes, I, I mean, and I, and I think that this is part of the part of the dynamic is that that you you need to go along with all of this uh, to be part of the tribe. But you know that soundbite you played from from Donald Trump and West Bend. I remember that speech. You know, you know, convincing people that you're being screwed, that it is being rigged. It's interesting that you would hear similar messages from, say, Bernie Sanders, but it was only Donald Trump and, and the Republicans that were able to really set that on fire here in Wisconsin. Hmm. Well, Charlie Sykes is with us today. He's founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark and also host of The Bulwark podcast, author of the book, How the Right Lost Its Mind. More importantly, he knows a whole heck of a lot about Wisconsin. And today, in episode three of our special series, The Power of Populism, We're looking at Wisconsin and the politics of resentment. A lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and you're back with episode three of our special series, The Power of Populism. And today we're taking a look at Wisconsin and the politics of resentment and how that plays into what we understand as populism in America today. I'm joined by Charlie Sykes. Uh, he is the founder and editor at large of The Bulwark and host of The Bulwark podcast. And joining us now from Madison, Wisconsin, is Sean Johnson. He's the state capital bureau chief at Wisconsin Public Radio and co-host of the Derailed podcast. Sean, welcome to On Point. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so what I still can't quite get a handle on and maybe it's because I just, you know, I don't fully understand Wisconsin as well as I should, is Charlie's been talking about the fact that there was always something smoldering under the surface, and then it, like, turns into this conflagration of resentment and politically successful resentment. How do you think that happened? Where were folks getting their language from about us versus them, about Madison and Milwaukee versus the rest rest of, of the state? I mean, something, something supersized all that. I think... It takes uh, the right situation for that message to work. And when Scott Walker was running for governor back in 2010, you had uh, an economy that was just coming out of the Great Recession. And so people were feeling that acutely everywhere. But certainly in Wisconsin, the unemployment rate was high. Uh, the economy was struggling. And so his message had kind of uh, uh, welcome ears out there. People, people felt it. So when he talked about the election in terms of us versus them or framed the public versus private sector as an us versus them message, it worked. Okay. So there's, there's, when it comes to American politics, as we all know, there's, of course, there's policy, there's money, there's tribalism, as Charlie was talking about. But I also wonder, uh, and Charlie, I've just, I got to go there. So I'm going to ask Sean this. Sean, what role do you think the media played? Uh, including folks like Charlie, who were on the radio for a quarter century in uh, in in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, Charlie Sykes and Scott Walker definitely talked a lot, and um, True. Y- you know, I would say that that Charlie played a big role in uh, having Scott Walker, you know, win the nomination, become governor. I'm not saying that he uh, officially endorsed or anything like that. I don't remember the particulars, but. Scott Walker was a frequent guest on Charlie Sykes' show. I think you could point to Ron Johnson's candidacy. He's our U.S. senator now, just won a third term, got his start kind of with uh, with Charlie Sykes. And so uh, he was a, a major factor in conservative politics for, for many years. And so that was where Scott Walker often would go to get his message out. He talked to the rest of us, too, but... You know, that was, I think, one of his preferred mediums was, yeah. uh, you know, conservative talk radio in southeast Wisconsin, where his 
political base lived at the time. Yeah. Charlie, you want to talk about that? You want to respond to that? No, it's totally true. Totally fair. Mia culpa. Uh, no, I, I have that uh, emblazoned on my resume. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I guess part of, part of the, the, the problem is, is trying to think like, okay, so I thought we were talking about X, but perhaps it was playing differently um, in different parts of the state. And the, and the thing about, you know, you're saying you're having a hard time getting your handle on Wisconsin. Wisconsin is, a, is I'm sorry, is a, is a weird place because there are different Wisconsins. Okay. You know, we are the, the, the state that gives you Joe McCarthy, but also Robert LaFalle at the progressive era. You know, we are, uh, you know, the, the, the state that has, you know, really intensely liberal areas like, for example, uh, you know, Dane County, but also intensely conservative areas like Waukesha. So there, it's easy to look at Wisconsin and feel like it's being schizophrenic. Um, but I think that what Kathy Kramer was tapping into was part of the state that a lot of us weren't paying attention to, that we didn't understand at that particular time, that we were focused on the politics of Madison and Milwaukee. But but everything that Sean is saying is, is true. And, and I look back on all of that. And, you know, I try to think that we were talking about ideas, but um, I would be incredibly naive for me to think that I did not contribute to all of that. And this is something that I think a lot about. You know, to what extent did we contribute to what happened? I mean, I opposed Donald Trump as strongly as I could have from 2015 to 2016. I thought I understood what the audience believed and what their values were. And then to watch them slide over made me think that perhaps my understanding was not as complete as I imagined it was. So, I mean, I had people that I had thought uh, I knew for 20 years who were suddenly believing things and saying things and adopting values that uh, shocked me, and perhaps they should not have shocked What did you believe their values were? I thought they actually were that this was – the Wisconsin – the Wisconsinites were, were serious believers in responsible good government, uh, personal responsibility, that character mattered, uh, believed in common sense, uh, liked policies that in fact worked, um, were uh, suspicious of, you know, people who had, you know, believed that they had all of the answers in, in public policy. But that generally, Wisconsin had a long tradition of good government, of sound government. We were leaders in everything. Uh, Wisconsin was a leader during the progressive era in many of the policies that led to the New Deal. We were leaders in, in education re- reform. This was a thoughtful place. This was the kind of state where someone like a, a Paul Ryan would come out of. Uh, and by the way, I certainly did not anticipate that Ron Johnson would become what uh, what he did. Uh, and again, mea culpa there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but to be clear, even Paul Ryan eventually capitulated to Trumpism but uh, and then resigned yes. and then resigned from the House because uh, uh, I presume he didn't want to deal with it anymore. Correct. But, the, but the reason why I uh, I wanted to ask about the media's role is because what you're saying, Charlie and Sean, reminded me of something uh, of an experience I had several years ago. We visited Pennsylvania and we were in western Pennsylvania and I was having this terrific conversation with a local voter. She was very thoughtful. We were talking about the the economy in her town and sort of what she's – the changes she's seen in the fortunes of her family, um, you know, who she wanted to vote for. Talked even about immigration and, you know, she asked me where I was from. And I was like, well, my parents are immigrants, et cetera. And it was really great. And then – All of a sudden, out of the blue, I can't even remember what triggered it, but this language came from her about about the globalists. It just started pouring out from her. And all of a sudden, I was like, did did like someone hit a 
a, a, like a, a play button in her head for Fox News. It was like just like that. Yeah. And the, the suddenness of it, I think, was was something that uh, folks, including you know those of us in this conversation right now, just don't or didn't fully understand. But Sean, yes. I want to take that into into today. I mean, how would you assess uh, the Republican Party in Wisconsin today and its embrace of now the Trumpist version of populism? I think the Republican Party in Wisconsin today is trying to decide what its relationship is with Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, when Donald Trump initially ran, you know, Charlie mentioned that uh, he did not win the presidential primary here. And that also was very much uh, a, a Charlie Sykes operation, as I remember it, too. He was very much behind Ted Cruz in Wisconsin. And for a time there, you had Wisconsin Republicans wouldn't even say Donald Trump's name in public. So at our state party convention, I remember that year in 2016, all these Republican notables in Wisconsin would get up on the stage. They would not say Donald Trump. That's kind of how things started. Once he became the nominee and the choice was between Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, they got behind Donald Trump. And then after four years of his presidency, I think you would say Wisconsin Republicans were firmly behind mm. Donald Trump. I think you're seeing a little transition now because uh, they feel like Donald Trump post-presidency uh, cost them some you know, gains, potential gains in the midterm elections, and that he is more potentially harmful for them than good going forward. The thing is, you know, the he could win the primary again, yeah. and we could be kind of the the story could be repeating itself. And so I think that's where Wisconsin Republicans are today: is what are we going to do with uh, you know this giant figure that's in our life and uh, isn't going anywhere? But Sean, what you're saying is when you say post presidency, you mean after he lost. So losing was after the thing. he lost in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yes, losing and, was and, the and, thing and, that had folks uh, being red, willing to jump off the Trump train, but they could jump back on if he wins again. I think they were still with him after 2020. I think two years of uh, of him talking about, you know, falsely claiming the election had been taken from him. And then the 2022 midterm losses is when you finally heard Republicans in Wisconsin start to say, we need to move on from Donald Trump. OK, Charlie, though, but there's something interesting about um, the alignment of various different kinds of Wisconsin Republicans mm -hmm. under the the populist uh, banner of, of Trumpism that I know you've you've talked about before, and that is if I have this right, that very quickly the sort of grassroots uh, populists and the more traditional sort of corporate free market Republicans um, were rowing in the same direction. Is that right? Yes. Um, but there's obviously some tension between them. I mean, there's no question about that. And, okay. th and there still remains uh, there still remains tension between them. But I wonder, I mean, why do you think that that's significant? Well, I, you know, I, I think that what... So I, I had a conversation with a leading Republican recently, and the conversation began with me saying, if only you had been warned. But he was describing, um, you know, the, the, you know, that the normie Republicans in Wisconsin really want to move on, that the normie, that the vast majority of state, state legislators were not part of the MAGA world, that they were more aligned with the, the you know, the free market uh, approach, you know, post-Trump uh, approach. But the problem, of course, is that the normies 
continue to empower the extremists, and they are unwilling to step up and you know push back against them. And you asked the question about the media, and this can't be overstated here. So he was describing the problem of dealing with the Republican grassroots. And he said, you know, people will come up to me and they'll have these weird conspiracy theories, these wacky ideas about the election. And they'll say, well, where did you get that? And they'll say, well, I saw it, you know, on, you know, risingpatrioteagle.com YouTube channel. And he said, there's, there's all of these sources out there that we cannot counter. And there's no way that we can push back. And this, of course, was my experience. Because I thought when I was on conservative talk radio that we were sort of the other point of view, but that other people would would hear from the mainstream media. What happened, you know, and it accelerated throughout 2016 and is continuing to accelerate, is that, you know, the right has created this hermetically sealed alternative reality, which is like a silo. And increasingly, it becomes difficult for anyone, whether you're on the outside or whether you are in the Republican Party to push back against this flood of disinformation, misinformation, and the kinds of, you know, uh, you know language that, you know, you feel like it's been, you know, it's been prefabricated. And this is a real problem for the right because yeah. um, there are no gatekeepers. There are no credible individuals who can say, okay, I'm sorry, that's just not true. You cannot believe that. And unfortunately, Republicans still believe that they can control it, that they can grow the baby alligator in the bathtub, throw them a little bit of red meat, and then are shocked when that baby alligator grows up, becomes big, crawls out of the bathtub, and starts going down the street and, and chasing them, um, and, and, and that they're going to be eaten. So, for example, even Republicans who knew that Donald Trump lost were willing to go along with a bogus investigation of the election. They were willing to appease the election denialists. And this is part of the dynamic yeah. that they cannot figure out how to lead the grassroots when the grassroots is being has so much information being pumped to them by so many outlets. Fox News is just the tip of the iceberg. Talk radio is just the tip of the iceberg. There's mm. just so much more now. Right. Okay. So this helps us sort of encapsulate once again why Wisconsin is such a good example of this modern form of of right-wing populism um, that we're seeing in the United States. Because as you said, Charlie, if the quote-unquote normies won't push back against the extremists um, and there's this tsunami of misinformation, like what needs to happen in order to curb the anti-democratic Uh, sort of anti-democratic muscle of this form of populism. And Sean, I want to turn that to you because in our first episode in this series, the answer to that question came from one of our one of our guests um, who said, well, actually, in fact, what has to happen to save a democracy from uh, extreme anti-democratic populism is that the quote unquote normies do have to push back against the extremists. Are we actually maybe seeing some of that? Now in Wisconsin, given um, this recent um, state Supreme Court election, I think in the state Supreme Court election, where you know we don't our, our justices or judicial candidates don't run with party labels, but the candidate that was you know supported by the Democrats won, Janet Protosiewicz. Um, I mean, it was kind of Democrats using their own brand of populism in, in this in this race. It used to be these uh, state Supreme Court races were 
pretty sleepy, low turnout affairs. They'd talk about, um, you know, their approach to the law, who their favorite justice was, stuff like that. Uh, Janet Protosiewicz ran a campaign on really two issues. Um, one, we have in Wisconsin this uh, 1849 ban on abortion that went back into effect after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And so uh, while she said every every time she would talk about it, she'd say, look, I'm not saying how I would rule in this case. However, uh, I believe in a woman's right to choose. She would say this very forcefully and repeatedly. The other thing she would talk about was uh, she, she would call our state's Republican-drawn legislative maps rigged. And again, she'd say, I'm not saying what I'd, what I'd do if there was a case before a court, but I'd like to take another look at those maps. And so how was that received by her voters? They were very energized. And if you went out and talked to Janet Protosiewicz voters, they would list those two issues to you. And as particularly on the issue of abortion, they felt like uh, a right that, you know, they had known some of them for their whole lives had been taken from them. And they viewed this election as a chance to get it back. And that's almost solely how they viewed the election. So that's kind of how you've seen Democrats respond recently in Wisconsin. Huh. Well, again, that's why I think Wisconsin is so interesting because, again, Charlie, to use your phrase, normies, uh, I wouldn't define normies as exclusively Democrats or exclusively Republicans, but rather those of us who, us Americans who believe in a normally healthily, healthily functioning yes. democracy. And maybe, you know, we're seeing the rise of that again in Wisconsin. So Sean Johnson with Wisconsin Public Radio, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Charlie Sykes, co uh, founder and editor-at-large at The Bulwark. Charlie, it's great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.